Hello and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here finally after a two-week break is my co-host Teos Abadia. Welcome back Teos. Great to see your mostly smiling face. It is good to be back. Uh, I am no longer jet lagged and I came with Player's Handbook in Italian. Ooh, is that an Italian version of the Player's Book? It is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had a lovely time. I had all the pasta a growing kid could possibly eat and stuff their face with. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, lovely time. And it was fun. My daughter or my my mom gave me this book at a kind of family mm -hmm. dinner we had at a restaurant. And when she gifted me, I'm like unwrapping it. And the waiter goes, oh, is that Dungeons and Dragons? I've played a few times. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> like, okay. That's awesome. We're everywhere. It's super. <laughs> it's yeah. What what a world. What a world we live in. The other thing I did this uh, weekend, well, we... Sean. Oh yeah. Ah. Uh, this big thing. You bought. You bought onslaught. Uh yeah, I got it for a really good nice. discount because I don't think it's doing that well. I mean, what do I know? I don't. I'm not. I don't know this for certain, but I get the feeling like there are all these expansions. There's a lot. It's it's being done a lot, and I don't hear it like tons of buzz. Um, it's being shown at like Gen Con mm -hmm. and places like that. But um, you know, there were demos at Origins. But yeah, I, I it has miniatures that you can't get anywhere else. So me being addicted to miniatures, I was waiting and I got a really good deal on a, a bunch of things all put together in uh. It was funny. The box was open, but like most of the stuff wasn't unwrapped. <laughs> Someone really gave up on the game without even playing it. Um, and there had they had That's several expansions. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, nice. It's actually fun. I I am going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot at Gen Con. Probably I'll go to one of the Learn to Play yeah. demos uh, and just give it a glance. Having played the D and D minis game and the Dungeon Command game, I have a feeling it's going to be somewhat in that realm. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. hopefully it will be pretty easy to pick up. Yeah, I liked it. It has some nice little mechanics that encourage um, like leveling up quickly and and wanting to do the things that the character should want to do. So there are a number of features that I was like, oh, that's clever, you know. I, I and I yeah, I enjoyed it. So, nice initial play, recommend. All right, well, we will uh, we will maybe have more to talk about after Gen Con when I get a chance to play it, but right now. We have some listener missives to uh, to get to. So thank you to everyone who wrote in. Let's start with Marcelo via Twitter. Hey, Marcelo, thank you for, for the question and for following us. When designing sleuth-type adventures, what are some effective ways of capturing clues discovery and making them challenging? And this is a good question. This is a whole topic on its own because we get into that idea of investigation and not wanting to have people miss clues that will shut the adventure down. We've talked about that lots of times. So what I do more than normal, and normally when I design, I design from the beginning to the end and then mm -hmm. from the end back to mm -hmm. the beginning. As I see the things that I need to think about in the future, I go back into the past and make those changes. When designing adventures like this, either where there's an investigation or where there are like several MacGuffins that you need to put together, several keys you need to get in order to continue, I more than usual design from the back to the front 
because then I can say, all right, at the end, I know they need this. Let me sprinkle these things throughout. And in this case, those things could be clues that you need to put together. So not only do I know then what I need to put together, but I know how they need to put together. And once I have that, then I can start playing around with the ways that these clues are found and the form that these clues take. So if you have that full idea of everything that needs to come together, you can get more unique with your design. So rather than just being, oh, here's an investigation check, you find this piece of parchment with these words. Oh, here's another investigation check. You find another piece of parchment with these words. Oh, here's another investigation check where you get the, you find the person who knows the password, right? You can go back and you can say, what are some interesting ways that I can do this? Do I don't need to have it on a piece of parchment. Maybe in this case, the person who held the clue was a gladiator, very strong, and we know that they are going to want to hide this. So I would have a uh, athletics check. Okay, we know this person hid something somewhere. This athletics check tells us where someone who's super strong mm. might think to put something that no one else would be able to get to. So you, barbarian, know that if you were hiding something and you were very strong, you would put it underneath this stone pillar that was somehow movable as opposed to you know hiding it in a sneaky spot. So that's when you can start doing those interesting and fun and different things. But you need to have the full blueprint first before you can go back and do that. I, I like that. I dig that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that whole start at the end and move backwards. Like that's a and, and we talked about that when we when we did our gumshoe uh, episode because that's something they explicitly recommend. And it's a very good technique because you're leading clues to where they're going. And so it all wants to make sense. Um, I also try to think about what would be a satisfying interaction uh, to resolve and, and uncover the clue combined with only having but so many mysteries or questions at one time, but making those explicit. So in the ideal scenario as a player, you don't want a fog of confusion where nothing makes sense whatsoever. Right? If you have that, you want that to be just a small amount of time, and then you want direction, right? You want to feel purpose. And the worst scenarios are ones where you just don't know what to do, right? You want clues, you want actionable things, you want paths to follow. Choices are great, but you want to have some solidity around what to do. And in fact, it's you know, if you just watch a table, sit there and go, well, do we check with the miller or we do go to the cartwright? And they have these discussions and, and they're meaningful. And when you think about it, you know, it's like, well, Miller, Cartwright, I don't know, pick one. But they will have fun thinking about that, especially if there's some things riding on that that color why you might choose one or the other. Then these kinds of investigations become far more interesting and pleasing to the players. And it also depends a lot on if you are doing this for a home group or you're doing this for a published adventure, because then obviously designing for those two things as marcelo well knows is is completely two different animals um whereas one you need to have it playable by anybody so you need to be more forgiving 
in having them find the clues. Whereas if you're making it for a home group where you know the players, you can start bringing in their backstories. You can start bringing in their specific character goals to to add a little bit of spice to this, what would otherwise be a typical investigation. Yeah, and the idea of making it challenging can stem from a lot of areas, right? So challenging can be that... Um you know, the, the clue in whatever form it is, is about to roll over the edge uh, while you battle with bandits, right? That That's challenging. Mm -hmm. um, you want to think about what happens if it rolls over the edge. <laughs> Did you miss out on the clue? Do you have to go a right. different path, right? Make that meaningful. Um, challenging can also be that you have to dig deep into the role-playing or, or uh, strategy of it, right? So like I think about murder type mystery type situations often have the you know singer at the cabaret type thing where you have to convince them to give you the clue right even though they don't want to speak out against their bosses their organization general underground world uh, and you must convince them to give right. you that right those scenes can be very compelling if you can run them effectively if you can give people the things they need to do to make a convincing argument um, that can be a very good challenge, right? I've had role, like great, some of my like a classic think of like great role playing times I've had have been when someone was like, you know, the elven prince is unconvinced. What do you say? And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, like, and you give it more passion and better, um, better arguing points. And then, yes, they, they finally agree to give right. you this help. Right? Yeah. Or they're unconvinced. And there's nothing that you're going to say right now that can convince them. However, if you go investigate, what does the prince like? What are the prince's mm -hmm. pressure points? Yeah. What what are what's some way that you can change the situation? That sort of investigation can be fun yeah. and be sort of, you know, a little wheel within the wheel of okay, now we know that what the prince really loves is dwarven ale. Uh, okay, let's get that, take that. Maybe that will give us a little, at least a chance to change the prince's mind. And those kinds of adventures are great. Like, you know, if you get kicked out of the the nobles' um, chambers, you know, no way, they're not helping you. And, you know, standing outside is some very sure of themselves uh, agent of the nobility that says, I might be able to help you. And you know that's going to mm -hmm. come with a cost, right? That is a challenge to weigh the pluses and yep. negatives of this alternate route, right? And those are really fun scenes. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that question. Our next uh, question comes from Chappy Thoughts via Mastodon. I was curious, what in the TTRPG world do you think doesn't get enough coverage? Uh, what we cover, because that's why we do it. <laughs> yeah. But with that, Teos, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure, we try to bring the the light to some areas that are a little, you know, dark <laughs> in the industry. And and with success in RPGs, right, mm -hmm. which I do on YouTube, I'm trying to talk about things that people don't talk about and and that don't talk about enough or think hold that sort of the forefront, like what people get paid, right? The realities of the industry, um, how many people end up on GoFundMe late in their careers, right? Like those things are topics that we just don't have front and center enough. And they should be. They should be absolutely at the top of every creator's mind. And fans should understand it too, right? Because so often we hear fans say things like, oh, this book is so expensive. Or, boy, you know, here's Wizards of the Coast trying to steal my money again. And, and 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's important to understand that industry and what it's like. Yeah, th totally for me. I Teos, I answered this sort of offline, and then I read Teos's notes, and it was the exact same thing, right? It's it's understanding not just the the game, but the business around the game, but also delving down a little deeper into the games. Uh, what drives me crazy sometimes is I'll see somebody either praise something for a reason that is not true i love this game because it's so simple to play and it's a horribly not simple game to play or vice versa i don't like this game right because it's so complicated and it's really not that complicated uh, so so getting into that sort of the basics of game design and how to look at games rather than just as a player or as a dm but sort of as the person creating it we, I love to look at what was the point of creating it this way? Uh, why? How? Was it a business reason? Was it a game reason? Was it just that's the way you decided to do it? Uh, those sorts of things. So I, I love that that dual aspect, and we try to do that yeah. uh, on this show. It, it's been fascinating for me recently watching MCDM talking about their RPG. And... Mm -hmm you know, the discoveries they make, because they're trying to be very transparent and talking about that design process, which is cool. You don't usually see that. Uh, and especially with their sort of Patreon only feeds and and, and, and the things like that, they've done some live streams just for Patreons. And, and they talk about things like, you know, like, well, we wanted to do um, to keep Arcadia magazine going and, and do, you know, maybe we'll do a 5e article a month and we'll do this and do the other. And someone internally said, really going to be able to do that. And they were kind of, no, <laughs> we need to not do that. You know, like, no. don't you need to focus? Aren't you looking right. for more time? Okay, so turn off those things, focus on this thing. Or yeah. things like, you know, the crazy dice. They wanted to use kind of weird dice. And then they're like, you know, 2D6 actually really meets the bill of what we want. But one of them will be a different color. And, and mm -hmm. just playing with that kind of, and, and the whys of it, right? It is, yeah. is fascinating. And, and I think yeah. a lot of times people don't appreciate, though, I, you know, we've recently had some really cool questions about things like, why certain die types, right? Or or why are games mm -hmm. different in this yeah. situation versus that? So I, I think it is, as an industry and fans, we are starting to ask more of those questions, especially in the design community. Yeah, and it's it's dangerous to talk about it as a designer. <laughs> why because, is that? Well, be, well, you know, wizards, take wizards, for example, they don't want to say this is what our game does. They want to put a game out and let people decide on their own what the game does because role-playing games in and of themselves give room for the dungeon master, the game master, the players to make their own tweaks, to become game designers in their own right. So by saying our game is for these, this group, for these people that does this, you are possibly turning off a group of people to your game who might not, who might enjoy it, but when they hear that, they're like, okay, that's not for me. Yeah, yeah. And I asked the question on on Mastodon, I asked the question, you know, when you look at a game, what is one thing that might immediately tell you this game is not for me? Is it a mechanical thing? Is it a, a presentation thing? Is it a genre thing? 
And I've gotten a lot of different answers, uh, quite diverse answers uh, from anything from I'll play anything once. And then if there's something I don't like about it to, you know, as soon as I see anime are I'm done, I don't even want anything to do with it. Uh, so, you know, that's the sort of thing that while it's helpful and sometimes fun to go through that design process, it, there's also a danger to it for being bad marketing. Uh, yeah. Not because you're doing anything wrong, just because you are by necessity in discussing it, segmenting uh, your offering. Yeah. Or even showing your vulnerability, right? If, if Jeremy Crawford discusses mm -hmm. how something didn't work well, you can understand why they would want to put it in very positive terms because you don't want to admit that mm -hmm. you're human like everybody else. And sometimes you design something and it, yeah. <laughs> change it up right yeah. so that balance of what to say and how honest and, you can be tough right and that's a shame because this is such an iterative process or it should be for a game designer an iterative process of creating something and then just testing the hell out of it just add this take this away add this take this away change this change that Con excuse me continually continually trying new things uh, and you shouldn't be punished for it and so the more going back to uh going back to the previous question uh right you you should iterate you should be feel good about that yeah. uh instead of instead of being um uh, hesitant to do it yeah. yeah all right next we have bram baker via twitter asking what was the highlight of your last session it's been a while since my last session, but you know what, what was the highlight of my last session? I'm not going to give a spoiler on the adventure. Uh, it it was um, it's the Citadel of the Unseen Sun from Ghostfire Gaming, our first fable, and the my my players are more beer and pretzels. Let's sit down, roll dice. Yeah, we can think and we can role play, but let's not think or role play too much. <laughs> and Sometimes that will bite them in the ass because they don't really think, you know, I'll set up a questionable situation, but it's the easy thing to do. And so they'll just do it. So the last session, they got to see some consequences of their thoughtless actions, <laughs> as well as to some positive consequences of actions where they did sit and discuss for a few minutes and do a little bit of you know, should we do what this person says or should we maybe ask around a little bit? And, oh, okay, yeah, we probably shouldn't just go do what this person <laughs> says because it might work out for the worst. Mm -hmm. And they've got some more consequences coming down the line, so I can't wait to present those uh, as well. So that was that was fun for, for, for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I have not run in a bit, which I'm trying to change, but now I'm playing the, the greatest game of all for, for people in the hobby, which is scheduling. Uh, but while I mm -hmm. work on that scheduling angle, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to like the last convention where I was and one of the fun things, and I, I think I shared that on the show, but it was a bunch of folks playing who were also DMing this event. And so we got to mm -hmm. see the different approaches we took to the same material, right? So there was a DM watching me run the event and they're thinking, oh yeah, that's different than, and I had previously played at their table, right? So it was this funny swap that we did. And then there were people who had actually played at both tables just as a player. And they got to compare our different approaches and kind of go like, oh, that's a neat, what you did with this scene really works. Or I liked what they did. And mm -hmm. then, you know, 
so that kind of comparison was super fun and 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 surprising for all of us right to see the different takes yeah it's it's great to be able to do that our last question uh nicholas qualls via twitter when planning out campaigns published or homebrew how do you plan out to ensure you complete it within a set time for example, pulling a Wizards of the Coast adventure and planning to complete it within six months of bi-weekly sessions. Uh, so, so uh, Nicholas, if you find out the answer to this, please let me know because I have no clue. <laughs> for a, especially for a longer session like that, I, I do. I generally do so one session at a time. I don't, I can't plan ahead mm. because I have no idea for like a home group, how many times we're going to be able to meet. I have the same issues as Teos. We're lucky if we can play once a month. Um, so I will sit down and I will say, all right, I'm going to start this adventure. This is what I plan to get through. If we make it through that, then I will plan for the next session. And a lot of it depends on, all right, last session, we only had one combat in three hours and I could tell everyone was getting antsy. So this next session, even though the adventure only calls for one combat in what would likely be three or four hours, I'm going to add two uh, because the players just need that. And then when I when that ends, I'll be like, okay, how far did we get? So I can't plan ahead of time for more than one or maybe two sessions uh, like that. Yeah, I'd say, so my preferred campaign, right, when I love the subject matter and I love the concept, I don't care, I don't plan, uh, I, I add as as the feeling hits. And I might subtract, but often I'm adding um, because I can work with the material. Mm -hmm. So generally I don't remove stuff, I'll just add and grow it. So that's how, you know, when I run ran mm -hmm. Tomb of Annihilation, it was, you know, two years to run that because it was just... I kept adding things, right? The sunken underwater city and the pirate campaign and the whatever. And I just, because I love that. But sometimes I do say to myself, this is going to be a short campaign because I just want a taste of it and I want to focus and do it, right? So for example, um, I think it was my first time or second time trying Numenera. I decided to run a campaign and I said to myself, I, I want to do a four session campaign. And I based it on the novel mm -hmm. series by Tony Dieterlizzi, uh, Wanla, the Wanla series of books, primarily the first book, uh, but with some bits from, from the second and third book that I just recently read with my kids. And so I was like, this is a great story. It fits the world of, of Numenera. I just want to go with it. So I knew the story in my head. And what I would do is each session, I had a thought of what I was going to accomplish. And of course, that goes awry. And then at the end of it, I'd go, okay, you know, the players are gone you know, what do I want to do next session? And I'd replan, but knowing it is ending at the end of, of game four, right? Like no matter what. And so mm -hmm. I would cut things, right? I would, I would smush two scenes together that I'd originally planned uh, or add a yep. thing that I thought needed to add the plot part that would give it the resonance in because it needed that kind of moment, right? And so sometimes you're, you're slowing things down because you need a place where things are slower for that kind of story beat balance. But I, I did that all the way to the end, right? And, and even the last session I had, because I knew it was the last session, I had things that I knew I could cut because at the end I needed to have that really important final scene that answered all the questions and, and took you to the next place. And then the space to say what happens 
a thousand years from now, even right, a hundred years from now, a thousand years, like where's the world go? Because it was that kind of a story and campaign, as it is in in the actual novel series, where we get to see snippets of what happens many many years after the novels end. Yeah. Yeah. And and equally important to a time limit that you might place on your campaign is is the leveling. How mm. high a level do you want your characters to get to? Do you want to get them? Do they want to play up to twentieth level? Are they happy to end after ten levels? What what's that? And then that will dictate how quickly you need to level. That will dictate the sorts of challenges you need at each level. So that sort of planning can. Uh, help you get within the realm of where you need to be. But even then, you know, so much depends on how play goes, your players, your own desires for your campaign. So, yeah, yeah it's it's hard. a great question. And everyone, yeah, everyone will have their own <laughs> uh, take on it. So thank you uh, to Nicholas, Bram, Chappie, and Marcelo for those questions. And now let's get to our news and commentary section, starting with D&D at San Diego Comic-Con, which is this coming weekend, July 19th through 23rd. Wizards will be there, although you may not have known that because they might not have uh, marketed that information in a way that let us know. Yeah. Uh, what did you find out, Teos, when you investigated this mystery? Yeah, I went through several investigative challenges uh, and found that they do have, in fact, a web page up for their Comic-Con participation. Uh, they are at Hasbro booth 3213, showing up upcoming releases, Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants and Fendelver and Below the Shattered Obelisk. There have been a number of videos also out about Bigby Presents walking through different aspects and trying to convince you that it's totally okay that Bigby is now a gnome. Um, they have panels. Secrets of D&D Dungeon Mastering with Chris Perkins. Ooh. You Got Your Pup Culture in My mm. D&D. They have Learn to Play events and Adventures League play. And there is a Spanish language area through the Latin Lounge with games available in Spanish. I think it's being coordinated through Mezzanine 16 AB. I hopefully mean something to you if you're going. Uh, but we have links both mm -hmm. to Twitter and Warhorn for different events uh, that you can use to find those Spanish language games. Uh, and then the post for the D&D uh, Beyond is also included in our show notes. Okay. While that's going on in San Diego Comic-Con, we are getting news about something special happening in London. What, you may ask? Critical Role is going to London. They will visit the MCM Comic-Con convention on October 28th and 29th. And they will also have a Mighty Nine reunion live show on October 25th. The live show is called Echoes of the Solstice. It will take place in London's second largest indoor arena with over 12,000 seat capacity waiting to be filled by all those critters out there who maybe being from London have not been able to get to the U.S. and see anything live uh, over here. So you will now have the opportunity in the oldest city in, well, probably not the oldest city in England, but the grand old uh, city on the Thames in London. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and the idea that they can even book that kind of a site is impressive. And they get anywhere close to filling it and it'll be, yeah, 
I mean, it's way bigger than my college metal band, uh, high school metal band did. Mm -hmm. And it makes you wonder if that works, if they sell out that place and it's, you know, a reasonable ticket price, what would stop them from going on a small tour oh, of places? Man, Taylor they Swift can continue? it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, you could do it. You could do it. Love it. That's how I a lot of it. bands are making their money now. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. It, there you go. Uh, Selling merch, all that. It, yeah. it, it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that and see how that goes. But it's Christmas in July here uh, in the U.S. and throughout the world on Drive Through RPG and the DMs Guild. There will be big sales through July 30th for their annual Christmas in July. If you want to see that sale, you just go to D&D Beyond, not D&D Beyond, uh, DMs Guild and Drive Through and click on the Christmas in July sale link. And you can get stuff from both Teos and I on there as well. Yeah, links in links our show in notes. In the show notes. Yeah. And and with social media becoming such a I don't I don't want to say a hot topic, but you know, social media is is becoming more and more controversial as the owners of said media do certain things that people might not be too happy with. What we're seeing are people going back to blogs and blogging. So, with no further ado, I will turn it over to Teos to talk about this blog comeback. Yeah, I think it's it's really true. I've I've been seeing it here and there, people talking about blogs and even going back and measuring things. It reminds me of when Facebook sort of said like, "Oh, this is the reality online," and then it took people like five years to realize that it was all not true. Similarly, you keep hearing how blogs are dead, and then you know, recently a number of us were looking at our blog numbers and going, "Actually, it's the number one." source of hits for whatever we do right and and it's true for me mm -hmm. uh, i think mike shea shared that his numbers for his blogs are actually surprisingly high and higher than other forms of media and i think that's true for a lot of people but we often mm -hmm. don't realize it and it can be hard to measure that but uh so a number of folks are turning back and saying hey blogs they're actually kind of awesome <laughs> so uh mike in fact mike shea has a website that he's been running for a long time called dndblogs.com and he has re-upped it, revamped it with new uh, 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 RSS feeds that pull in a variety of blogs and give you a snapshot. So you can go to dndblogs.com and check that out. Similarly, Ian World has set up a bot that posts blog updates throughout the day to Mastodon. So if you follow them, uh, you can follow the account ttrpgblogs at chirp.ianworld.org. And you will see all of these blogs coming up as options. And actually, it's a really nice way to follow up something like Masson, because if you find that there's a blog that you like never care about, you can just filter that out, and then you'll see the ones you do like, mm -hmm. plus anything new that shows up. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, Sean, I, I pulled together a number of different blogs that I thought would be quite interesting to look at this week, and we can just kind of go through them quickly if you want. All right, sure. Yeah, the first one's POC Gamer on Aquatic Campaign. So this is Graham Barber, known as POC Gamer. Uh, has a blog series talking about uh, world building for aquatic campaigns. Uh, he discusses the challenges of campaigns, where to gain inspiration, key themes, travel monsters, and using elements such as depth to understand scenes. And we have a link in our show notes there to pocgamer.com. 
Who's next? Ooh, Mr. Merrick Blackman, who is a supporter of this show. Thank you, Merrick. Mm-hmm. He writes about wandering monsters and experience. And it's a really cool, thought-provoking blog post talking about the role that wandering monsters have played in the past, particularly through the lens of like experience points, which came through combat and treasure in older editions. But wandering monsters had the rule that they did not have treasure. So you got a lot less experience when you met them. And he talks about the evolution of video games and how they'll have often that wandering monsters can be the main source of your experience and leveling up. And then how experiences change across D&D editions. He talks about different models of wandering monsters and how they impact play and DMing. It's just a very fun read and I think sets it up for, for follow-up blogs he's going to be doing. Awesome. Yeah, I love reading uh, Merrick's reviews and blogs. And I also love reading Gnome Stew. So Gnome Stew has been around forever, won any awards in the past, and they're still going. And they're looking at world building through one shots. Uh, the folks at Gnome Stew discuss how to use one shot adventures as the starting point for a campaign. And then during the session zero, you'll tell the players up front, yes, we are going to do this via one shots. And then after the one shot, you discuss which parts were, were interesting which caught everyone's attention, which maybe didn't. And then you can work to develop that sort of play in your campaign. And uh, that's at gnomestew.com, uh, world building through one shots. Very cool. And last but not least, let's talk about a little bit of crowdfunding. Um, we looked last week, we talked about Savage Worlds and it's still going. It ends July 27th. So you have about nine days, uh, eight days as of the airing of this. Uh, and it's you know celebrating their 20th anniversary again with bundles and more. So uh, you can go check that out. What about HeroQuest? Ooh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, so for the first time in 30 mm-hmm. years, there is a new expansion available in stores and online. And this is called The Rise of the mm-hmm. Dread Moon. And it completes a story begun in this expansion many, many years ago called The Mage of the Mirror, which focused on the story of the elves. And it also involved the character Sir Ragnar. So you can get this latest version. Uh, It's available right now through Hasbro and in stores. 29 new miniatures, new monsters, a whole lot more. And I know a little about this because there was a new online quest that you can get available for free at the HasbroPulse.com site. There is a link in our show notes. And that quest for it serves as a nice intro both to Rise of the Dread Moon and the game itself. And it provides a sneak peek mm-hmm. at one of the new monsters, the Spectre. And I know a lot about it because I got to design this quest, which was a lot of fun. Really Ooh. great working with the Hasbro team. Hasbro had a Hero Quest Day on July 15th this past weekend, featuring actual play streams that played through Rise of the Dread Moon and through the new online quest Nightfall. Awesome. Well, good work, Teos. I try. I've got my I've got my I've got my Hero Quest box sitting right there waiting for me to start playing. I, I'm like, this week might be the week, and then mm-hmm. people fall through and it just it hasn't quite happened yet. And uh speaking of big boxes, the Gloomhaven RPG. We haven't really talked about this. I I was interested in it, and then it sort of fell off my radar. 
And so for this week, I thought, I'm going to check in and see where we are with this Gloomhaven RPG, because I thought it was kickstarting. And it turns out that it wasn't. It was being done on backer kit. Mm -hmm. So let me first say that this show generally drops Wednesday mornings, Eastern time. Wednesday night, this backer kit closes. So you'll, but if you're hearing this right when the show drops, you will have just about 12 hours to, uh, to back it. So go right there. If you listen to the show, if you wait until Thursday, you're going to be too late. <laughs> well, but what they of. did with this backer sort of, okay. So in that often backer kit allows you to back things afterwards. And something that's worth knowing is, okay. yes, these things end, but also you can often then go into a pre-order phase. So yes, try to make the window that will be good for everybody involved yourself and them. But often you can continue to do things. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, like you can go to Backerkit okay. and you can pre-order Forge of Bows, even though we finished that campaign quite some time ago, right? So there are. It's worth right. checking if you ever go, oh no, I missed the thing. Go to Backerkit and see because yeah. maybe you Check can it. still do it. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. So what's interesting? Yeah, no, that's fine. So what's interesting about this is I I instantly looked at the how much they've raised so far and it said four million dollars and i thought okay i was wondering how a gloomhaven role-playing game would would fund being that gloomhaven was so popular made so much money really took the the board game uh world by storm when it came out you know years ago so I thought, I wonder if that would carry over to a role-playing game. And I saw $4 million and I thought, okay, yeah, that seems like, even though it's backer kit and not not uh, not Kickstarter, that's where I would probably have guessed it would be. But then I realized that that $4 million wasn't just for the role-playing game. The backer kit, they call it like the Gloomhaven Fair or something. So you could buy not just the role-playing game, but the second edition of the board game or uh, Frosthaven, the follow-up to Gloomhaven or this other package with a bunch of minis or this other thing with a bunch of ancillary products for, for the Gloomhaven board game, not role-playing game. So I was like, well, okay, so this 4 million isn't just for the role-playing game. This could be, and then I, well, I'll go in and I'll look at each individual pledge, which you could just pledge for the book. You could just pledge for the box that goes with the book to make it like the deluxe role playing game. The first, the book was thirty dollars. The whole set was ninety. I'm like, okay, and, and so I was figuring that out. But then I realized that there were pledge tiers where you could get the board game and the role playing game. So I'm like, okay, now now I there's no way I can figure this out. Uh, to any reasonable extent about how the just the role-playing game would have done. Um, so I'm sort of sad that <laughs> I can't look at just, okay, they kickstarted this, they put all their effort into just the role-playing game, and this is how it came out, uh, which was an interesting strategy, I thought. Uh, I don't know if it's because they didn't trust that a role-playing game would do well, or if they you know, wanted to draw more attention to the board game via role-playing game or how that worked out? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, you can't argue with the result, but yeah, like the, you can get the RPG core book, which only has yeah. 238 backers, but they also super entice you into everything else. The RPG deluxe set 
has about 200 fewer backers than Gloomhaven Second Edition. So clearly, there's a lot there that's going off of the Gloomhaven game itself. But but yeah, that that right. is interesting. That makes it very hard to figure out how powerful it is just on its own right. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of comments about you really didn't show us what the game, the role-playing game was. <laughs> uh, th they had actual plays up there that you could watch, but you know, the, just in terms of the text itself, didn't really explain the mechanics. So if you, unless you sat and wanted to watch the, the actual plays and assuming that the actual plays actually taught you how to play the game, as opposed to some actual plays where we know really are di divorced completely from the actual play of the game. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, strategy, I'll, I'll say. Very. But, you know, it's there. It will be out uh, at some point, I'm sure. And uh, it's something to keep keep an eye on in the in the role-playing game, uh, tabletop role-playing game stratosphere. And now we're going to get to our main topic today. We are going to get back to the Dungeon Master's Guide, Chapter 5. This will be our third dive into Chapter 5. We looked in part one and part two at dungeon settings and dungeon encounters and wilderness settings and wilderness encounters. Now we're getting into the urban settings as well as unusual environments and traps. It's, it's amazing so last week, how much work yeah. this chapter is doing, right? <laughs> it's like, wow, kind of yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, how much work, how much work it's attempting to do and how mm -hmm. much work it's not actually doing, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is a paradox, but not uh, not surprising yeah. with the beast that role playing games are. So we you know, we've talked about what the Dungeon Masters guy says about designing games and mapping dungeons, uh, designing and mapping dungeons, what they've said about designing and mapping wildernesses. We touched momentarily on mapping settlements, which was little more than some tables for randomly creating race relations, ruler status, noble, notable traits, what a settlement is known for, the current calamity in a settlement, and then seven tables to create random buildings within your randomly created settlement. But now we're going to get into the actual urban uh, urban encounters, right? Urban dungeon crawling, if you will. And my first thought on reading all of this is there's the old saying that form follows function, right? You figure out what something is going to do and then you design it to do that thing. And I'm beginning to feel like in role-playing games, <laughs> form uh, doesn't follow function and function <laughs> seems to follow form. So what we do is we create the building and then we decide what we're going to do within the building as opposed to designing what we want the building to do and then designing to serve that function. That's a great point, Sean. And, and I agree yeah. with you fully. Like th this whole section is, is almost, it, it's like a, it's a really weird slice at a toolkit, but not really a toolkit that creates a place and almost doesn't talk at all about what the adventure there is, which is fascinating mm -hmm. to me. And I would say, like, I hate to say the word wrong, but it's 
kind of wrong. Like, I don't think it, it's the right path mm. for people to follow. Yeah, it's it's the same thing we've sort of been talking about throughout most a lot of the Dungeon Master's Guide here, which is that it's it seems like it's built for people who already know how to Dungeon Master. It feels like it's for people. It's more of writer writing prompts than teaching how to write. Right. It's it assumes that you are going to know what to do with these tools. And the tools might be cool and the tools might be fun, but unless you know how to use those tools, it's a, a bit lacking in its utility. Yeah, and, um, and so hopefully when we see yeah. Some of our listeners have, have raised the question, you know, well, is this being written for experts? And sort of the starter set does the intro work, but the starter set isn't really teaching you how to DM. So something has to, yeah. some product should, and there's nothing in between. So <laughs> this is the product that would, right? Mm -hmm. And it is the Dungeon Master's Guide, but it, it doesn't really guide you in that way. And it's fascinating. Right. It, even something as simple as think ahead about what you want to take place in this town and make sure that a building is there. If if there are rituals going on in the town that the characters need to stop, there should be a magic guild or an alchemist or somebody who they can go to to be able to learn how to stop the ritual if they don't know automatically. Uh, right? If, if there is this ritual in town, you will need secret societies of evil God worshiping people. Uh, so you know, you need to have sewers where they can meet or secret build, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't even take that first step in helping out game masters. And, and even a, to answer the, the question, which to me would be the top question of how do I make a good urban adventure? You know, what are the keys mm -hmm, to that? Right. And and if, if I look at the chapter headings, uh, I go, hmm, no. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And and right. So the first thing that it, this should talk about, and we'll we'll get to this in a second, is what makes urban encounters and urban adventures different from dungeon or wilderness encounters or adventures? Mm -hmm. What goes on in these urban areas that will make your adventure different and it doesn't discuss that it doesn't say in dungeons and in wildernesses you don't have the safety that you would have in um in in a town where you yeah. can go to a place with a warm fire where you can go to a place even if you have to steal it that has food um that has air that you can breathe that has right. Those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, you're also closer to civilization and there are more innocent people around. There are more people that you have to consider and worry about. You can't just throw fireballs willy nilly. <laughs> if you come across people in a dungeon or out in the middle of nowhere, yes, they may be innocent, but they're, they're people that you have to think about and deal with in this strange situation. Whereas in a, an yeah. urban environment, there are just people walking up and down the street and how that affects an adventure. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, this 
starts with the section law and order, which I think is very interesting. And in fact, this is preceded by a, a statement that says, quote, characters who don't go looking for trouble can take advantage of all the benefits that a settlement has to offer. But then it doesn't tell me what those benefits are and mm -hmm. or whether the idea is that characters behave because then it tells me law and order, trials and sentences. And we are kind of told that if they're based on the settlement size and the alignment of the settlement, which is very interesting, uh, this will shape how much of a trial you get and how you might be sentenced. And I like this quote, a person found guilty of a crime is usually fined, condemned to forced labor for a period of several months or years, exiled or executed, depending on the magnitude of the crime. And I'm thinking, great, what does the DM do with this, Sean? It, it begs the question, what is the role of adventurers in a world? Yeah. Are they supposed to be, are they supposed to be treated in the same way as every other citizen or are they the exceptions to the rule and if they are the exceptions to the rule if and you could run a campaign either way but you need to make that decision at some point then this law and order section comes into play right, right. are the characters going to be able to break the laws with impunity and get away with it uh and if they do get away with it why do they get away with it because they have a plot immunity in your campaign? And so therefore it's just assumed that they go on and whatever. Is it assumed that because they are strong, they have the influence to get away with things because of this, they know the sheriff or the queen or the head of the merchant guild or, or whomever that's those sorts of questions need to be hashed out when you run these sort of city-based urban adventures. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would like to know, or the DM, I'd like DMs to be instructed on what is the point of these laws and rules and the interactions between the entities that govern the urban campaign and the PCs, because there is really rich territory there to mine, but it's not mm -hmm. as, through the, you know, uh, you, you broke this silly rule or a serious rule, and that's the end. It, it should be about the larger story and how this reinforces it, right? If it's a tyrannical rulership, then falling in, into some, breaking some law is how you come into seeing that the, the settlement's rulers are thugs and the guards are thugs and that you want to oppose them, right? And you get to see how the people are being mm -hmm. harmed by this, right? Or if the idea is that this is a place run by merchants and everything is done to support the mercantile aspects in the guilds and it's the guild to wield the power, then that's the interaction that you're seeing, right? And so it's almost like this section is, is provided without a premise. And, and the really important part to me is the premise. Like that's the part that one should work on and, and the DM should learn to master over time, right? Yeah, yep. All of that is is important. And how the how all of it works together, how the characters' roles in the setting, how the 
world's role in the adventures that they are going to go on, how all of that comes together, and how to navigate it. What challenges are you going to put in front? What conflicts are all this going to cause? Because that's what we're here for, right? We're here as the game master to present challenges and 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 consequences for succeeding or failing at those and what it means for the game and what it means for the story. And, and there are real pitfalls that hurt play, right? So like when you as a DM bring people into a settlement and nobody really learns what the settlement is known for, then the experience is shallow, mm -hmm. right? If, if you're in a town and you leave the town, you don't really know what's up, but that's where meeting the, the mayor uh, or meeting, you know, a, a noble, uh, meeting the person who runs, a, a, who works for a guild, like getting those snapshots of life builds the character of this place and places it within the larger framework of the story. And you want to think through that and do that and find ways to make the experience tangible. Law and order is one of them, but it's not the only one that then builds this relationship right. so that it feels rich, right? Yeah. And so like Teos, I, I'm reading this. And I, you know, I've read the Dungeon Master's Guide before, but I read it and then I put it away because I sort of knew how to run games already. And so as I'm reading through this again, like Teos, I, I go, oh, maybe maybe there's something here I missed. Maybe there's something fun that I could use in an adventure that I might be working on. And I flip the page from you know Urban Encounters to Unusual Environments. I was like, I feel like we're missing yeah. a chapter here on on this <laughs> it's very surprising and, and the urban encounters are great right so it's like you know there's some fun snapshots that give you the concept of hey as a dm here are the types of fun things that can happen when you're in an urban environment and that's great but but then it just ends and it's like wow it's law and order and urban encounters and off we go to different environments like wow that's i yeah i would want to see more in the next version i hope all right. So we go from the dreaded streets of Lankmar or Greyhawk or Baldur's Gate mm -hmm. straight to underwater, which what is what climate change is is moving us towards. So I guess that's <laughs> a that's a transition that makes perfect sense. Uh, so so we go to under unusual environments underwater, and almost like the previous section, I'm like okay. Cool. Let's let's make this transition underwater. So the first thing it says is see chapter nine of the player's handbook for rules on underwater combat. Okay, no problem. So I I click that link because I'm using uh, D and D Beyond, and the actual rules are only four sentences. There's there's four sentences of sort of introduction, and then there's four sentences on rules for underwater combat. They couldn't have just put those four sentences there instead of making the game master go to a completely different book. But even then it's not, here are some challenges of underwater combat. Here's why you might want to have underwater combat. This is how, why it can be fun. This is why it can be challenging. It's just go here, see the rules. Oh, and here's a table of random encounters underwater. Well, and even chapter nine All right. isn't fully complete. Right. So there are some pieces here and in our show Not notes, in close. case DMs are curious, uh, there are some uh, we've put I've printed them in here in our uh, show notes. But, you know, there are movement issues. There are breathing issues. There's melee and ranged combat, which is the part that, you know, gets in Chapter nine. 
there's fire damage and yeah. having resistance to it. So there's actually a grab bag of mm -hmm. things that you need to sort of put somewhere. If you're a DM, like in fact, I did mm -hmm. a whole, like I was saying, you know, when I ran Tomb of Annihilation, I did a whole underwater thing. And I had to pull all this stuff together because it wasn't anywhere. <laughs> and that's literally mm -hmm. what I want out of right. the DMG, right? Like that's what I want out of my underwater section. Tell me everything I need to run. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's true. Because I went to chapter, you know, chapter nine uh, of the thinking, okay, I'm going to get a nice section here, an underwater combat that I must have forgotten was here. And it didn't, it didn't have the movement thing. It didn't have the breathing thing. Uh, four, four sentences uh, on melee, two, one on melee weapon attacks, two on ranged weapon attacks, and then one about the fire damage underwater. And that was all that was in the chapter nine section of the combat uh, portion of of the player's handbook. So Teos has nicely dragged all of these uh, underwater rules here in our show notes for you to, to look at. And then we, as I said, we get the underwater uh, random undersea encounters. So roll a D12 and a D8 and you get a number from two to 20, but it's yeah, a sunken stone statue or monolith. Uh, four of them five of them are undersea caves mm -hmm. one empty one with the sea hag one with the merfolk one with the giant octopus and one with the dragon turtle all right and so it's 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 fine except that it's not enough uh yeah, then we I mean, get a, a section on swimming underwater visibility like, yeah. nothing here tells us how to get underwater and that might sound simple to mm -hmm. some DMs, but to a lot of DMs, cool, I want to be underwater. How do I get there? Like, tell me all the ways, right? It's probably worth discussing the main ways that someone can even accomplish this. And how should you do it story-wise, mm -hmm. narrative-wise? Because at a lot of levels, you kind of can't pull this off. And swimming is a problem, as we get in some swimming rules here that mm -hmm. for uh, you can't swim for a full eight hours a day after each hour of swimming. You have to succeed on a con saving throw or gain a level of exhaustion. So that won't be happening for long. And it doesn't address this at all, let alone to me, Sean, which is the important part of being underwater. And this is something I think about a lot because I like that as a concept. It's very hard to pull off a great underwater experience um, because our brains very quickly just assume we're walking on the ground. and Mm -hmm. We forget we're breathing water. Uh, it mm -hmm. just becomes commonplace unless you do a number of things in your adventure to bring and highlight the fact that you're underwater, right? The currents come through and push you in this tunnel. Uh, there's a different temperature mm -hmm. in the top half of this area than in the bottom half, right? Which happens with water current, things like that. You've got to add the sargasso and and yeah and, and three-dimensional combat like you didn't mention mm -hmm. three-dimensional combat in this thing like that's the biggest part of being underwater <laughs> right right and how how hard it can be for low-level characters to handle and how easy it can be for high-level characters mm -hmm. at low level if you go in without planning if you try to run an underwater first level adventure if your characters don't realize that, oh, I better not be using this great sword or great axe. I better be using a spear or a trident instead. 
and you throw in a monster that's not hindered by the underwater mm. aspects, it's you're going to wipe the party out without even thinking. Uh, you know, but then when you get high level where everyone can have water breathing or freedom of movement, then it sort of does become it becomes less of a a fantastical thing and more of a, yeah, I'm breathing and I'm swimming with no penalties. So really it's just like flying except for the, the fire damage. I can't do as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and that, and that needs discussion, right? Because that's what makes that, that's Mm -hmm. what DM it's, it's in the list of DM things they need to know. Um, Super shocking to look back. just like you're saying in the previous section, like looking at this section, like really, this is what's here. And it's not that I don't like what's there. It's just that it's what's not there. The absence that really sticks out. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, we get more uh, more of a primer on owning ships and weather at sea and, and visibility as opposed to actually having underwater encounters. So, you know, the chapter is called Adventure Environments, but it feels like it could be combat environments versus adventure environments Mm -hmm. so when you're on the ship at sea you know what the weather could be what it costs and and the sort of expenses that are ongoing if you own a ship how much ship a car uh, how much cargo a ship can hold whether it's a warship or an airship or a rowboat um you know all of that is pride which is which is good which is Mm -hmm. necessary uh so it, at least in that sense it gives the the game master something to to use as they plan their seafaring uh adventures and i think you know they're trying to use the random encounters as a sort of like cool things to put into your game but especially here where there is no um uh the, the random encounters at sea table doesn't come with any additional information it it really misses the mark here mm-hmm. because it'll say things like floating debris. Okay. Yeah. What do you do with that, right? And mm-hmm. I'd almost rather this be five cool right. things to add to a sea adventure that are illustrative of what you will should do as a DM, right? Mm-hmm. So floating debris at sea, followed by increasingly larger bits of debris, and then you find mm-hmm. what has happened right or is happening and this is a great way to create a neat it feels maritime because you've got this debris thing that's floating Mm -hmm. it creates interest and piques everybody's curiosity and then you play out whatever it is you know the crack in attacking a ship or the the result of the shipwreck and they need help you know it can be any number of scenes but it comes Mm -hmm. off of this piece right that kind of thing would to me be a more of a how-to that would you'd read this and you'd go oh, okay i will do things like this mm. and i feel like i can do things like this right. these tables to me almost feel pers- like like just they, they don't like they don't teach right they don't teach what's right. possible and what would make a sea campaign neat a voyage on the sea great like yes yeah. there's visibility right. changes but it's about telling people how to use those visibility changes that will make for an interesting encounter not just having a table yeah, if if I rolled randomly on this encounter and I got pirate ship, you know, I'd be like, oh, cool, I could. And then I'm like, wait a second, how do I run a ship to ship combat right. in a way that 
is reasonable, that's understandable. Okay, I guess I could know, push people off. How tall is a ship to climb if you get pushed <laughs> into the water? How you know, those board? sorts of things <laughs> where you just... Right, how does one board a ship without a plank being uh, lowered or a rope being lowered? Yeah. Uh, is it even possible? Yeah, right. Not to mention, what about cannons? What about, I'm imagining right, those my sorts head, of things. It would be really hilarious if some scene where like two ships come together and then they hit, but then they bounce off of each other and then they have to like hit again, but they <laughs> everybody's trying to board, but you can't right. figure it out. Yeah, I, there, there's so like much here cars. that just isn't filled in. You know, and we get this table of of ships, mm -hmm. and and there are really interesting design aspects to it. Um, you know, seven entries. One is an mm -hmm. airship, which ties into a small the sky section to have afterwards. Um, crew damage thresholds, mm -hmm. what it takes to repair. Ships are hugely expensive, ten thousand to thirty thousand gold. So that brings a lot of question as to you know if you gained one or if you buy one, what the players might expect out of that and that alone is a topic because if you give someone a ship they might turn around mm -hmm. and sell it when you thought they'd use it uh or if they keep it when you thought right. they'd sell it and now they want to really use it how do you run a campaign off of this um right and what does it mean to battle another yeah. ship that has 300 to 500 hit points and only when you deal 15 or 20 points of damage do you count the damage because of the damage threshold yeah. You know, a galley has a crew of eight. How far yeah. yeah. And and what's uh for you know, what's four miles an hour in rounds, you know, feet mm -hmm. per round? Uh as as I try to figure out how fast these two ships are closing on each other. Or oh, it's it's uh yeah. Yeah, and, and well, there is some information. That's on why it. we have the DMs Guild, right? Right. Well, <laughs> and Ghost of Saltmarsh does add some pieces to this. It also hilariously rewrites a bunch of the stats for these ships. I don't even know why. Um, so we do get some mm -hmm. later, but but then Spelljammer goes and ignores most of it. So I, you know, it's it's it is interesting that this is a huge aspect of the game. That it could be a huge aspect of the game, and it could be a really fun aspect of the game, but it really isn't put together. And I think any DM who has tried to run adventures on boats uh has has wished there was a lot more support for it mm -hmm. yeah so we go from the sea to the sky and three paragraphs three paragraphs is what we get about the sky one of the paragraphs is saying what flying is <laughs> <laughs> They can move to one place to another in a straight line, ignoring terrain and monsters that can't fly. Hmm. Okay, thank you for that. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it gives a little bit of information on mounts. And then a, a but, but not a lot. And then it says you can make random encounter checks as you normally would as the characters fly. But if there's a monster that's not a flying monster in that check, uh, the characters can just ignore them if they want. And that's the kind of advice that, you know, is really important. This is true of teleportation as well, things like that, where it's like, you know, what what do you do if the players will skip the fun that you've planned for them, right? Or how do you alter the fun mm -hmm. so that you can bring them to the ground? Um, and what it means to explore, because, you know, this chapter began with wilderness exploration. Um, 
And there's some interesting rules, right? A flying mount must rest one hour for every three it flies, and it can't do it for more than nine hours a day, assuming it's a living flying creature. If it's mechanical or a magic item or spell, then mm. it ignores that. Um, and you convert flying speed right. to miles by dividing by 10. So if a griffin flies at speed 80 feet, that means it travels eight miles per hour and do nine hours, so 72 miles uh, it, it, can, it can cover. That, that's a significant amount of space on a lot of maps. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things I'd want to see here yeah. is some advice to the DM on like, wow, when this shows up, which can be early if you have a druid that can summon animals, you know, this is mm -hmm. this is important and it, they may skip all the fun. And so if that starts happening, how do you bring the fun to them or bring them to the fun? You know, they see smoke down below, you know, a wreckage, something and, and that draws them uh, so that they don't miss all of the action or how do you run a combat in the sky in three dimensions, right? Like that is also not here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the same questions about the depth of the ocean, the sea could be put here on the height of the altitude of the flight. Mm -hmm. When you're really, really high up, the air is thinner, it's colder. Uh, there, there might be winds that would affect you. All of that would have been really cool to, to be here as well. So we go right from the sky to traps, which is not an adventure environment per se, but I guess it had to be somewhere. So let's put it here. <laughs> and we get all the, all the things. There have been many great articles written about traps. Previous editions have handled traps very well. Uh, so what do we know about traps with this? Well, we we learn immediately that traps can either be mechanical or magical. And we don't know if that's going to carry through and actually have any ramifications in terms of mechanically dealing with them. But we assume that it will. Uh, so we get then talk of triggers. All traps have triggers. Whether they're mechanical or magical may determine what that trigger is so with the mechanical traps you definitely have to interact with it in a way that moves a mechanism mm -hmm. so it could be stepping on a pressure plate turning a doorknob some way where something is moving and the the, mecha the mechanisms uh are triggered whereas magical can just be a proximity thing if somebody walks into an area where there's a magical trap, just your presence there could set off the trap without actually harming uh, or moving any piece of me mechanism. Uh, any uh, thoughts on that? I mean, just stepping back from this, so it, it's fascinating, this mechanical magic thing. Like, it almost makes me think like they 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 rushed this. I mean, we, we've heard that the DMG was sort of rushed. I, I wonder if they had a whole concept and then they just had to, change it at the last minute. Um, but also, they once again don't tell you the, the big glaring question, which is, when should I use a trap? What's the point of a trap? What is the fun of a trap? Yeah, right. As a DM, how will my trap mm -hmm. be awesome? What does that mean? Right? Right. It's almost, again, yeah. the form function and... thing, right? It's like, traps can be found anywhere, so use them. Right. Well, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Uh, so they, they tell us about triggers. They Then they tell us about detecting and disabling. 
where they uh, give you the ability to detect, usually with a wisdom perception check against the trap's DC, a passive check if people aren't looking for it, an active check if people are actively looking for it. I Again, my game design uh, hackles are raised a little bit there. Uh, you may call for an investigation check to deduce what needs to be done once the trap is found, followed by a dexterity check using thieves tools to perform sabotage to disable the trap. And you know, right there, I'm like, whoa, wait a second. So you're talking about three separate checks for a trap. First finding it, then one check to find it, one check to figure out what it does, and then one check to disable it. And if any of those fail, what happens? Do you really want three checks in order to disable a trap? Um, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. But what are the game story and mechanic consequences of doing all those three things? Um, do you yeah. want to slow the game down that much? Yeah, and it's been said by some folks that, you know, maybe the DMG in particular was trying to appeal, as we know, as a core concept of 5th edition, trying to appeal to lots of different types of players that were existing players, and thus did not want mm -hmm. to be too prescriptive in saying this is the way you play. But it kind of mm -hmm. ends up doing that anyway, just in a loose way. And what I would rather they have done is said, here is the default, and here's why, but here's why you should also change it. Because mm -hmm. instead, it's like a loosely written piece that feels like it's the way, <laughs> and, and thus has led to, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of bad play. And it's always yeah. interesting to take this section and compare it to any printed adventure, which tends to be not actually a lot like this. No. No. And if you start with something more concrete, like you say, Teos, then you can differentiate from it. I know that I personally like when they have sort of a stat block set up for mm -hmm. a trap, mm -hmm. because what that tells me as both a designer and as a game master is I can set the standards and then I can give differentiation based on situation as opposed to this loose sort of thing where really I have to invent the wheel every single yeah. time I create a trap. And not only am I creating that wheel, but now I have people using the wheel in ways that they did not expect to use the wheel. So they're, they're thinking, why is he calling for an investigation check here when obviously this should be in my game, an arcana check. Uh, and, you know, then we get that sort of tension between what, the expectations of different players and game masters are. Yeah, and some expectations are worth stating. Like, you know, if you, the cleric, bump your wisdom up through the roof and take a feat, and now you feel like it is your God-given right to find every single trap ever and never be impacted by a trap, how does that impact play? Or if mm -hmm. you're the rogue and you see yourself as the disarmer of traps, but the wizard is saying well any magic trap i should be able to handle not you can't use thieves tools on this it's an arcana right. check look where it says that in the dmg Th these kinds of things are, are not really i think thought through in 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 fifth edition unfortunately to the detriment of play 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And traps can be a great addition to a challenge, to an adventure, to an encounter, if done well, but it's hard to do them well. Mm -hmm. So the explanation of why it's hard to do them well and what steps you can take to remedy that difficulty and the resistance you might get from players for, for various reasons, many of which we've just discussed, are there. Uh, we do get a trap save DC table uh, and a trap damage severity by level table, which is a good, at least it's something. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a start. So we, we can see that, you know, if the save is 10 or 11, it's a setback trap 12 to 15. It's a dangerous trap 16 to 20. It's a deadly trap and by uh, damage by level. So, we have care, you know, each tier, tier one, tier yeah. two, tier three, tier four, the damage that should be done by each type of trap. So a setback trap for level characters one to four is only one D10, whereas a deadly trap for 17th to 20th level characters is 24 D10. And so at least I have a range. At least yeah. you are telling me, okay, this is what we expect traps to do in in the game. And this is interesting in two ways. One is that this is really one of the few places in the DMG or the rules where we get a window into expected damage output. So you can use this for a number of ways to, to, to calculate things and, and improvise things. In fact, I like having this table nearby to think of what is a, is, is a hard hit or a, or a medium hit or a light mm -hmm. hit. And this deadly level is, in fact, quite deadly. You know, I have seen, oh, yeah. uh, you know, the characters will die with these deadly levels of damage uh, if they're a little bit hurt and you roll high on these things. Um, and mm -hmm. so it is interesting, like a lot of areas of 5e sort of will say things like deadly, but they lack any real punch. This stuff is for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, think back to an adventure I wrote where there were two traps back to back. And if you miss the first one, you hit the second one. The second one drives you back into the first one. So it's sort of the double whammy if you're not paying attention. And the adventure was written for a range of character levels. So a deadly 10d10 trap against fifth level characters does a lot more damage than a deadly uh, trap for 10th level characters. Uh, so Well, the good news and is you... My you tip know, my tip my hat to Mike Shea uh, on that one. I was just gonna say the good news is you know people who would never complain about such things. They would just take it. Nope. You know, great maturity yep. and deal. Yeah. Um, two other thoughts on this table. <laughs> one is uh, that this table, being as strong as it is mechanically, should then really come with something that says what's the role of adding this to scene. Uh, to mm -hmm. an encounter, to a combat encounter, or in between, you know, what, because it has an impact, right? How can we talk about challenge ratings and all this sort of stuff and then not address how this really impacts play? E even just in an instructional way, it doesn't have to be a mathematical way necessarily. Some people might want that, but just address it, right? Explain it to DMs that this is, this is serious, right? You might be really beat up from a fight and then you go to the chest to get your reward and you get killed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so right. You, you want to think through that. Um, 
it's also worth noting that Xanathar's revamps traps uh, in yep. a major way, including fine-tuning these tables and fine-tuning the, the next part we're going to talk about. So it's, it's interesting to compare that. You know, it was clearly seen yep. as imperfect by the creators, and then they went and addressed it with yeah. Xanathar's. Yeah, because the next section talks about complex traps and how to sort of put them to put traps together to make them more like a combat encounter, uh, which is a good idea in theory. But as someone who has tried to do it in practice, there is a different mindset that goes into the player's dealing with a trap as opposed to dealing with monsters. And if you don't get players in the right mindset, they are going to treat every trap, complex trap, like a monster. They're going to try to defeat it by doing enough damage to it to render it useless, as opposed to making checks to shut it down. Uh, mm -hmm. So just from me to you, you have to be very careful with trying to use this sort of complex trap system that's described here. And it's described in again three sentences or three mm -hmm. paragraphs that are probably six sentences total so it's not uh, it talks about having the trap roll initiative and then having the trap do its damage and reactivating every round as sort of an action and you got to be you got to be careful with that um xanathar's does a better job mm -hmm. with that yeah. but even then it's not it doesn't really get into that how to make it work as its own thing as opposed to other types of encounters that the players might be used to. Yeah, and, and we get sample traps here, which are, if I recall correctly, different than the Xanathar's sample traps, uh, which helps us then get a, a, a window into how they might play. Um, collapsing roof, falling net, fire-breathing statue, pits, several types, poison darts, poison needle, rolling sphere, sphere of annihilation, and so these give us those feelings of, okay, what does it feel like to have, you know, this rolling sphere that, that's going around? I think that one might be revised in Xanathar's, but anyway, it, it, it gives you that, that concept of, okay, here are things I can emulate and play off of. And so I'm very glad for this. It may be not the most perfect design, which is fine, that happens, but, uh, but it gives you a really good impression of, of what's possible. As you said, this is not an easy stat block format. It is text-based in a lot of it and complicated to mm -hmm. run, uh, especially as compared to say fourth edition that had these nice little monster stat blocks. Those weren't perfect in their own ways, but they did have really nice stat blocks that felt like monsters and so you mm -hmm. could very easily grasp how to run them. Yep. So I think we've reached the end of chapter five, Teos. Uh, any overall thoughts that we haven't already uh, delved into? I mean, I think that there is just so much here. The, 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 the real story to me is the absence of what we would want to see here, both as topics. I mean, unusual environments. We could go to more places than they touched on. Um, mm -hmm. Traversing the wilderness, hex crawling, you know, all of this. this. This is a chapter that tries to cover a lot and I don't think does so in a particularly satisfying way. Everything is good. It just is not enough to cover the topics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take the right approach to cover the yeah. topics or provide enough material for them. Yeah. So 
we will now move on to chapter six, where we find out what happens to characters between adventures. Mm -hmm. But that's for a different episode. So thank you, everyone out there for listening. Thank you to our patrons and thank you to our new patrons. We've had a little influx of patronage and we sure do appreciate that. We, I know that for me, this can be a lot of work and sometimes I'm run down. And when I get run down, what I do is go to our Patreon and I look at all the people who are giving us a little bit of money to do this. And it, it gives me a jolt of energy. So thank you so much. Uh, everyone out there for for being patrons uh to our master of dungeons supporters thank you to our master of realm supporters we have you commemorated in our show notes and to our masters of the multiverse well this is for you keith ammon of the monsters know what they're doing craig bailey steve bissonette merrick blackman evil john Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heidsler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Matha Magician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna, say Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our patrons. And if you like the show, please consider supporting us at our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, telling us what you think. You can also subscribe to our show via YouTube, where you can see us up close and personal. Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, find me at alphastream.org. I will be recording the next success in RPGs today. I cleared my schedule, so I'm excited. We're going to talk about the Creative Commons license and provide the how to do it. Uh. Um, nice. and, uh, Sean, if I wanted to find you, where, what do I do? Well, you can, you know, just fl fly to Western New York and mm -hmm. here I am. Or, you know, if you don't Everybody want to get that close, Sean's. that's right. It, if you don't want to get that close to me, which is probably the best move you can make, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The podcast is also on Twitter at Mastering D&D. We're on Mastodon. Uh, the show is Mastering D&D at Dice Camp, and I'm on Sean Merwin uh, at Tabletop Social. You can also join the Patreon, of course, and leave comments for us on our Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Teos... We've been through some adventuring sites, some adventuring uh, milieu, if you will. Now we're getting ready to figure out what goes on between adventures, but what are we going to do now? Oh, wow. Well, uh, we are going to jump onto our griffin. We're going to swim above the ocean and look down on those underwater encounters that our DM describes and just look at our DM like, what are you talking about? I'm not going down there. And then just continue mm -hmm. flying on yeah i'm gonna and, get a sandwich oh, sandwich is that a downtime activity mm -hmm. is that we'll sure cover is. that next week right yep 